0: And so what what finally happened, it was probably like 13, 14, 15 years in, I woke up one day and it really hit me. I was like, I'm not that same person anymore. Like I am fundamentally not the person that I was in 2002. And I would never do those things again. Like it's not even in my mind, it's not even my character. Like I have built the habits to allow myself to be a different person. And so I can let go of and forgive the person that I was. I can let go of that guilt because guilt is a motivator to change. And I've done the work, I've changed. I'm not that person.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Hardest Step, a podcast produced by The Lost Debate. I'm Kost Marte, founder and CEO of Combody, a prison-style boot camp where we proudly hire formerly incarcerated individuals as our instructors. I'm also the co-founder of Second Chance Studios, a nonprofit media organization where we train returning citizens. I got involved with this type of work because I am a returning citizen myself. I spent years behind bars on drug trafficking charges, and those years really changed my life. That's why I decided to start this podcast,
2: to hear from people who have also found a way to start over. That's right, Koss. That's the main reason why we're here. I'm Chris Marte, Koss's younger brother. But in my free time, I'm also the New York City council member. The road to elected office wasn't easy, but after a couple of failed attempts, I finally earned the trust and support of my lower Manhattan community. Today, we're speaking with Jesse Crossan. He's
1: an online creator who's very open about his prison experience, and he regularly shares it with his online community. As a teenager, Jesse was struggling with drug addiction, and things got completely out of control in 2002 when he and three other people committed a home invasion and robbery. A week later, he also shot and wounded two men who were
2: chasing him after an altercation. Jesse was sentenced to 32 years behind bars, which at the time was twice the maximum of sentencing guidelines in his home state of Virginia.
1: During his time in prison, he earned a psychology degree, served as a mentor for fellow prisoners who also struggled with substance abuse
2: and even became a yoga instructor. And in 2021, he received a conditional pardon from then-Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Jesse, it's great to have you on. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump to it. We really want to start around your high school experience, you as a teenager. Can you elaborate a little bit more of what were you doing, what was going through your head?
0: Sure. I mean... My whole life I felt like you know I, everybody had an answer that I didn't have or if I could just figure something out I'd be able to fit in or I'd be happier or I'd be I'd be okay I always felt like I was missing something and so I was you know trying to figure out what that was and when I found a community of people who wanted to drink and get high and party I felt like I found a community I felt like I found a group of people I understood because they felt like they were missing something too. And it didn't, it wasn't an immediate disaster. Like I made a a lot of bad decisions, but I was still in school. I, for the most part, was staying out of trouble. Like I I got drunk and stole beer one night and got arrested for that. But for the most part, I was staying out of trouble. And, you know, I was going back and forth and I I was deciding, okay, I'm going to take a year off before college, or maybe I'm going to go to hotel and restaurant management school. I'm just going to find myself. And then in that period of time, I found cocaine and it was just like a supercharger. And all of the, the partying and all the things I was doing in my life went completely out of control. And within three months, I went from that kid taking a year off before college to committing a robbery and driving down the road and shooting somebody and just being completely out of my mind. And it was this decline that I couldn't even realize. Like, I remember when I was arrested, there was this sense of relief because it was like, I didn't know how to stop myself. So somebody had finally stopped me.
1: You think the drugs was the reason that that made you take those risks and like go out of control? Or was it because you were an adolescent at the time that you took those chances and took those risks? Because I feel like personally, when I was a adolescent i didn't even think twice i was just like around friends and you know if somebody if i had to get in a fight i got into a fight you know because i was around friends and i didn't even want to prove anything it just like it was a natural reaction sure. and today i wouldn't take that chance so do you think that that was like a sense of what was happening when you was an adolescent
0: Sure. So I think it was three things. I think I have some kind of trauma and some really maladaptive patterns that I've struggled with. And thankfully, I've gotten treatment for over the years and that I'm still in therapy for. Then the basically just being young and impulsive and not having a lot of you know a constraint or restraint or not having anything to stop me from doing the first thing that popped into my mind or say the first thing that popped into my mind. And then third, the drugs would just act as a further, like I said, like a supercharger. I mean, they just, when I was angry, I was super angry. When I was excited, I was super excited. And so the impulse control and the emotions just kind of spiraled out of control. And it was it was a perfect storm of all three things that led me
2: to where I was. Once you got arrested the first time for for stealing this beer, Did you just think, oh, that wasn't that bad. Let me keep on going. Or do you think this was just going to be the start of the, like a pattern of you just trying to live that extreme lifestyle?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was 16, so I was a juvenile. So they didn't end up giving me any time or they gave me what they called a day in lockup, which was basically like four hours. I had to sit down in the the bottom of the courthouse before they let me go. Then I was on probation and I was kind of bouncing back and forth about what I wanted to do. One of the things was, as a child, I listened to all my dad's stories. My dad had been kind of like a career criminal and a radical and everything until I was young when he got clean and he turned his life around. But I still heard those stories growing up about him smuggling drugs, about this thing that he did, about this robbery got like all these things he did. And what I saw was somebody who had lived a wild life, but now was a, a counselor and now was giving back to the community. So I felt like, okay, this is just a part of my life. Like I got to get this chapter out of the way. I got to kind of live wild and do crazy things. And then once I get to some point, I'll clean up and I'll start giving back. So I just kind of took it for granted that that was going to be my path, but I didn't realize how far it was going to go or how much harm I was going to create.
1: Do you think that's part of the trauma that you experienced that you're still seeking therapy for today? Was that the issues or did you even experience like your dad doing anything in front of you or you just heard stories?
0: No, thankfully, he cleaned up when I was two. So anything that he did was okay. it, it, basically earlier than I can remember that I have any memories of or before I was born. My sister's told me some of the kind of crazy stuff. My mom has told me some of the kind of crazy stuff. She also got sober when I was two. So I basically grew up in a pretty stable household. Now, I grew up because he was in recovery. We had people come to stay with us or around us that were definitely like wild or, you know, just like a day clean or, you know, kind of back in the life. So I grew up around it, but not in a way that was really glorified, except in the old stories. So it wasn't so much that I had to see that stuff from the past. um, It was more just not knowing how to adapt, not knowing how to how to function. Like, I, I always felt like people had a better set of coping skills than I did. And I didn't understand why and I didn't understand what was wrong with me. And then finally, over the years, I realized that most people don't know. And most people just don't have the kind of extreme reactions that I had.
2: So let's touch on the two instances that that led you to prison. First, a robbery and then uh, shooting someone. You did this robbery with other people. Were you kind of peer pressured to do in there? Were you like taking the lead in it and saying, like, let's just get this done?
0: It was I think it was a combination. It was. We were all strung out on drugs. We had run out of money. We had kind of like run all our connects out. We didn't have any more favors to call in. So we were trying to figure out and we were sitting down with one of my co-defendants who said, hey, you know, I used to work this restaurant. And these people are really exploitive and they, they only hire illegal immigrants and they take all their money and they only give them like $2 an hour. So they always have like 50 or 100,000 cash in the house. So we go in there, we can steal from them. And in my mind, I use that to justify as just like a Robin Hood scenario. Like we're, we're not really stealing from people. We're stealing from bad people. Yeah. Like one of those things that allows us to justify, you know, a terrible decision. And it it built into this idea. And uh, I remember the day, like the day we were walking to the house, I had this moment of like, what am I doing? I need to not be here. This, like, I can't do this. But what I told myself, I was like, stop being a coward. Like, stop being scared. Like, you need to be there with your boys. You need to do this. But what I realized now is that like cowardice was going and doing it just because they were doing it, going and doing it because we had talked about doing it. Like bravery would have been saying, hey, no, I'm not doing this. Like, I don't feel good about this. But I didn't understand what bravery and cowardice were. So we went, and it was. We thought the house was empty; like the cars weren't there. We we're like, okay, cool. We're just going to break in. We're going to grab the cash, and we're going to leave. And my co-defendant went around to the front door, and he knocked on the front door just to make sure. And it turned out there was a maid who was home. So he like kidnapped the maid, stuck a gun in her face, tied her up. It was this horrible situation that we didn't intend to be that horrible, but that doesn't change the, the harm that we did. So these people came home to a house that was ransacked. Uh, the, the maid was tied up. She was traumatized. Like this was this horrible experience. And as far as I know, there wasn't even any money. So we were like operating in this this ridiculous thing. Like we got like a bottle of liquor and a digital camera. Like we didn't get anything out of the house. This wasn't, this wasn't like people see movies like The Town and they think like criminals have this grand master plan and we know what we're doing. We were just strung out. We were crazy. We, we, we had no forethought. So all we did was basically create all this harm because in our minds, in some twisted way, it made sense.
1: And then you got caught for that? So
0: it was about a week later, the shooting happened. So... I was sitting around, we were sitting around the house. We had found somebody else basically because we didn't get any money from that. I found somebody else who fronted me a couple ounces of Coke. So all of a sudden we could be back to partying and we're like, we're back good. Like everything was okay. And we were sitting around and there was a guy who had these, these two guys had stolen a gun and sold it to a buddy of mine who sold it to me. And then something happened and they started calling my buddy saying, Hey, we need that gun back. Like, you know, you, you know, whatever you need to do it. And he said, no, sorry. Like I got rid of it. There's nothing I can do. So that night, uh, his girlfriend, who was pregnant, called up and was like, hey, these guys are at the house and they won't leave and they're threatening me. And so we were freaked out for her. And so I got on the phone and was like, look, you need to leave or else. And I was playing Billy Badass and trying to be the hero and trying to you know, be the big guy. And so we we had words and we said, all right, let's meet. So we ended up meeting. And as I was going there, I was all full of adrenaline and I was so angry and how dare they. And, and once I got there, it was the same thing as with the robbery. There was this like moment of clarity. Like, what am I doing? Like, I'm running around like I'm ready to go fight somebody or kill somebody. Like, what am I doing? So I left. Like I drove away and they chased me. And as they're chasing me and going down the road, we're going back and forth. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, look, I'm trying to leave. Just let me go. Just please let me go. And they kept revving like they were going to ram the car into me. And they were in the passing lane. And then finally, the passenger reached around behind him to grab something. And I don't know. Like in my mind then, he was grabbing a gun and I had to stop him or he was going to kill me. But for all I know, he was grabbing a stick of gum or he was grabbing – like I don't know what was actually happening. But in my mind, I felt like I had to shoot him or he was going to shoot me. So I did. I unloaded the gun and I took off and they, they swerved in the middle of the road ended up going to the hospital and they both lived, but I hit both of them. So it's, it's a miracle that I didn't kill both of them.
2: Wow. And how did you eventually get caught for it? So they were already, I think they were already looking at
0: us for the robbery and I don't know why or what the, the connection was, but again, we were so out of our minds. We, th- there's any number of reasons for it. But then the the two guys that I shot gave a description, this guy with, you know, this name with this truck, like they basically told them who I was. So the cops were then looking for me and made the connection of the two. And the next day, um, we went back, cause I knew I was in trouble. I was gonna like leave town. We were gonna like pack the car up and go, but we hadn't slept in three days and we had now run out of cocaine again and we didn't know where we were gonna get more. So I went to my buddy's house and I just passed out. And when I woke up, the the SWAT team was outside. So it wasn't, it wasn't a coordinated like robbery. It wasn't a coordinated shooting. It wasn't a coordinated escape attempt. It was just just chaos and
2: insanity. What was like the first thing that ran through your mind when you heard that the SWAT team was outside the house?
0: That I had to run and get away? I actually, I was sitting right next to a shotgun. And I remember grabbing it and being like, oh no, fuck this, like I'm not dying for this. Throwing it down and then running up. And we were in a like a duplex, like a, a top bottom duplex. So I was like, maybe if I run out the top, I can be like, what's going on? I don't know what's here. I ran out and the first thing I did was run into the barrel of a gun and the cop said, I'll shoot you dead boy. And I was like, all right, yeah, you got it. And it was like, they were on a bank here but there were these steps and there was ice and snow on the ground. He said, all right, put your hands over your head and walk backward down the steps. And I remember thinking like, dude, I haven't slept in three days. I'm still half drunk. Like, you want me to walk backwards down icy steps? But then it went through my mind like, hey, if I fall and break my neck, at least I don't have to go to jail. Like, maybe this will work out. So there was this weird like dissociation and like almost relief. And I literally remember when they put the handcuffs on me, like breathing a sigh of relief because I knew that the crazy train I was on, that all the harm I was doing was at least over for them.
1: And then you see the judge and what happens next.
0: So we, well, I, I saw the, they took me to the police station and they wanted me to, to give a statement I didn't and, um, went back to the jail and basically slept for like two or three days. They didn't even put me in front of a magistrate. I think they were supposed to, and they didn't, um, but they weren't going to give me a bond. We went in front of the judge and we like, we, I asked for a bond I had a public defender at that point was like, Hey, I you know I've got a place to stay. Like I've got a job, I've got all these things. And they were like, yeah, you're, you're not going out. Like we, you're definitely not. So then it was because in my mind, even though I went to jail, even though I had shot somebody, even though I had committed a robbery, I couldn't imagine being in the jail for like as long as it would take me to get a bond. And then it was like, wait, I'm not going to do that. And then I couldn't imagine being there for as long as like a year. And then uh, we did went they, through. The- did
1: they even give you bail? No, like, they never did. Yeah. I doubt they're going to give you bail. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, and rightfully so, I was out of my mind. Like, I, I don't know that I would have immediately gone back out to that insanity, but I was not in a good headspace. Um, but I went back and ended up getting, uh, talking to the lawyer and getting together and being like, look, I'm guilty. Let's just like plead guilty. Let's just get this over with. So we didn't get like a plea deal, but I actually like my lawyer at the time had told me is like, look, we get these sentencing guidelines. You'll be good. Because originally my sentencing guidelines were eight to 13 years. He was like, so you're probably gonna have to do 10 years and that's going to be a lot. And I like slowly kind of like began to accept that. And I was angry sometimes. And I was like, man, I really deserve this sometimes. But I was like, okay, this makes sense. And then when I went for my sentencing hearing, The day, like the first time we walked in, they said they made a motion to change the sentencing guidelines. So the guidelines went from eight to 13 to 10 to 16 years. My lawyer pulled me aside and he was like, look, if I were you, I would just go ahead and go because the judge has seen the old guidelines. He'll probably go by them. You'll probably still get 10 years. And I was like, all right, cool. So I I got up and I gave my statement. I made my apology to the victims. I talked, I made my apology to the family. I talked about the fact that like, please, like just put me somewhere where I can get help because like, obviously there's something wrong with me to be doing this. Like get me treatment, get me mental health help, get me whatever I need, but don't just stick me in a place like the jail where nobody has an opportunity, where I was able to like start taking college classes because my family could pay for it, but nobody else had anything. I remember having a buddy. I, I really appreciate what he said. He was like, look, even when you're getting ready to go to prison, like you're advocating for other people, like, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I like it. Um, But I remember, like, okay, I was how, just long, trying to,
1: how long you lasted in in jail for? Uh, I was in you, ten you, months. You copped out, okay. So you you copped out pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just I, I, I had done it. My my whole thing was, yeah. I think, in the beginning, I was like, well, maybe we can fight this, and then I was like, dude, I caused all this harm. I don't need to put anybody else through a trial. I don't need to like. I just need to own up to what I did because that's one of the things my dad had always said. Like, you know, if you're gonna do something, you just gotta own up to it. That's the cost of doing whatever you do. So I pleaded guilty. And then the day of sentencing, the judge read out the sentence. It was like, you know, five years with two years suspended, 10 years with five years suspended. And I'm doing the math in my head. I was like, this man just gave me 32 years, but he didn't say that. So my lawyer was like, uh, your honor, could you know, what was that sentence? And the judge was like, I don't know. Like, I just told you. So they had to get the clerk to read back what he had oh. said and do the math. And there were like 32 years and the whole courtroom gasped And I remember just being like, yeah, that was it. And actually I, I turned and I remember it was one of my friend's brothers was there and he just, his jaw had dropped and he was just, he's the one face that I remember from that day for whatever reason, just like so distinct Is there,
1: is there a specific reason why they gave you a double of the sentencing guidelines?
0: I mean, they, I think they kind of painted me as a ringleader of the group. I don't know exactly like how that happened. I know two of my co-defendants testified and like immediately gave statements. So they ended up getting
1: shorter sentences for that. Um, I don't know. I mean that makes sense, you know that this is definitely got something better, but they but it's crazy. The, the one
0: guy who life. didn't testify only got two and a half years. The other one's got four and eight, and I was like, how does the guy who doesn't? It, it was just wild.
2: It's wild. Yeah. Did you were you able to talk to your family at at that time when you went back to jail?
0: So they they took me back to the jail and they actually, they put me in medical because they were like, they thought it was so wild that I'd gotten such a wild sentence. They put me on suicide watch for a day. And I was like, well, thanks. That really makes me feel better. Like you're telling me it's so bad. I should fucking kill myself. Um, so they, I was sitting there and I remember I was, I was sitting in medical for like an hour or two hours or something. Finally I got a phone and I made a phone call and I didn't know who to call. I was like, I can't call my mom. Like what, what can I possibly say to my mom? Like this just like as as wrecked as I am, I know she's 10 times as bad. Like this had to hurt her. And I think I finally talked to him maybe that day, maybe the next day. I can't remember, but I was just so like numb until I heard a song on the radio and I had like a breakdown. I just kind of crashed emotionally. Yeah, it was it was an experience, but eventually like my family was the reason I was able to do that time. It's because they believed in me. And when I wanted to give up and when I wanted to just you know, not really imagine a future. They were like, no, you're going to find a way through this and you're going to get an education. You're going to help other people. Like, you're going to find a way to make the best of it. And I don't think they even believed at that time, but they knew they had to say something. And it it worked. Like, it gave me a way to move forward. It gave me a sense of purpose. It gave me an identity because I was lost and I was broken.
1: And going to actual prison, you became a facilitator for drug abuse. And and tell us a little bit about all the, how you got into like being a yoga instructor while you were incarcerated uh, how you became a mentor.
0: Sure. So I, I mean, I, I, bounced around. I had pretty much every job you could have in there, except in the kitchen. I worked in the wood shop. I worked in the law library. I was a tutor. I was a, a maintenance worker. I, I just did everything. Cause I wanted to like get as much job experience as possible. I also just wanted to be able to get out of the cell and like move around and do something. Um, so the, I had tutored guys early on, like one of my first cellies, I love this dude to death. I uh, had been struggling to get his GED for like three years. Just like couldn't get it. Like no matter what, he could never pass the math. So I made him a deal. I was like, you teach me to box and I'll teach you to, you know, do math basically. Like We'll work on this. So we we had classes every day and it took about six months. And I, I still remember the like light bulb moment where like he got it, like where he finally got it. I don't remember if it was like long division or if it was algebra. It was something though. He finally got it. And I was like, dude, he's going to get it. Like, And sure enough, the day he came back and he passed his GED, dude was 6'6", like 260. Came and like picked me up and swung me around like I was a little kid. He's like, I did it. I just, I mean, that was really the thing that like, I I knew I wanted to help other people, but that was the moment where it's like, man, I got to do this. Like, this is the most meaningful, purposeful thing I can do in my life. So I did, I kept, I kept tutoring other people. I had, I was able to, like I said, go to, go to college, which took 15 years because it was, it cost so much money. But I would then like help other people like this one kid. He really wanted to go to college, but his family didn't have money. We found a group that would donate the books. So we would I basically took him through like a two year college education because he would get the textbook. I would give him assignments. I would make him talk about it. I would make him do presentations. So he basically got a college education with everything but the degree or at least an associate's degree. And then I was like, I want to. So doing you, this.
1: You, you helped them do like correspondent college degree What or...
0: basically I, I did what the correspondence course would have been. Like I gave him okay. homework and I made assignments and I, because he like, he couldn't afford to do it. So it was just creating the experience so that he could know because he, I mean, he came from a family where nobody had ever gone to college. Nobody ever, I mean, probably half his family hadn't graduated high school, So he wanted to believe that he was smart enough to do it. And he never did. He was like, man, I'm like, I can't do that. I'm going to go be a brick mason or I'm going to go do this. And there's nothing wrong with that. My goal was just to say, hey, you can do whatever you want. If you want to be a brick mason, you can do that. If you want to go to college, you're a smart guy. You just don't realize it. This was a way of showing him his potential or like showing just how much he could do if he he chose to apply himself. And it, it seemed to work.
1: And for people that don't really understand, can you explain why it took you so long to get a college degree? Sure. Uh, Because for me, I went I went inside and it took me about two and I went into the college program and it took me about two years to get into the college program. And then I only got to do like a year and a half, which gained me, I don't know, like a few credits. So like, like break that down a little bit.
0: Sure. So like in Virginia, there's no there's no state run program. Like there's nothing where they pay for you to go to college. There's nothing put on by the prison. Uh, some institutions have like community colleges that come in and you just have to pay out of pocket. Usually it was people who had VA benefits, people had gotten out of the military, use the VA benefits to go to school. But for me, like I went to one of the private uh, correspondents through Ohio university and it was just, my mom was like, look, I, I don't care what it costs. I want you to go to school. So she would save up a chunk of money and that would be enough for one class. And I would sign up and I would take that one class and then she would save up a chunk of money and then I would take the next class. And in addition to the money, because we just couldn't afford to take more classes, it was, I have to write it out by hand. I have to send it in, and I have to wait for that response before I can fill out the next assignment. Everything comes in textbooks and workbooks. I'm doing it all by hand with pen and paper. I'm mailing it in. I'm waiting for it to come back. It just takes a long period of time. Um, so it was a difficult, like arduous process. But it was also, I mean. I I guess some people talk about now about how hard it was, but in my mind, the whole time I was like, man, I'm getting to go to college. Like, ain't nobody else around me getting to go to college. Like, this guy might get to go take a couple community uh, courses if he can afford to or if his family will do it if he he got out of the military. But I just felt fortunate the whole time, no matter how hard it
1: was. Do you believe college should be for free inside the system? Uh, A lot of people are against it, but from your personal i believe
0: experience. that the more we invest in education the the more successful people are going to be getting out I, I understand the argument of saying hey why are we giving things to prison if we don't give to everybody else and honestly i think we should find a way to pay for college for anybody who wants to go but i also think that we should prioritize trade schools and other things because if you're not going to work with your college degree there's no re- reason to spend you know four years and forty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars but i think that for the people who have that aptitude and they're going to be able to do something with it whether they're in prison or out i think we should find a way to pay for them to go to college
2: yeah, I agree. Um, talking about your cellmates, you also had one that was a, a serial killer and it took you a few months before you actually realized that. When you finally realized that, did you like rewind every conversation you had with him or how did you deal with that, knowing that you had to share a cell with someone who has that experience?
0: yeah. I think what was so weird is I really liked the guy. Like before, I knew I really liked him. So when I found out, because the only reason I found out is he had been stationed. He had done. He'd been I don't know in the military for like thirty years. He'd done a bunch of time uh, in Japan. And my stepmother had lived in Japan when she was little because my grandfather was a missionary. So I was like, hey, this guy never gets any mail. He doesn't have any phone calls. But like, you just write him a letter. Just talk about Japan. Like I just I liked the guy enough that I wanted him to have some kind of contact with the world. And so she came to see me after I wrote that letter and was like, hey, Jesse, I got to tell you something. Like I looked this dude up. Uh, He's got a crazy story. Like he's, he's wanted for, you know, murders all over the country. He suspected all these. And then I went back and I was like, man, what do I do? And I ended up telling him, I was like, Hey, uh, remember I told you I was going to get somebody to write you. Well, uh, and he just looked at me and he was like, Oh, you did your homework honey. Huh? He like smiled. And I was like, Oh shit. Like but at the same time, <laughs> in, as uncomfortable as I was that night, or as, as much as I thought about like, man, I need to move or I need to do something like I still on a daily basis, like the guy. And that was the beginning of me understanding that nobody's just one thing. Like this guy is clearly a danger. Like he clearly has a malintent, but he liked me. But it just, it it was such a weird thing. And it, it, it kind of made me understand because I remember one time he was super calm. He was super quiet. He was this little old guy who was in really good shape. And I remember the one time he spilled his coffee and he just started like screaming at himself. It was the only time I'd ever heard him raise his voice. It was the only time I'd ever heard him like act anything other than kind of like calm and controlled. And what it made me think of was like a mother screaming at her child, like a mother just completely losing it and screaming. at And I was like, man, that's when it clicked. Like, that's where this came from. This dude is like basically had all this rage and all this fear from being abused as a kid, being treated a certain way that he still has that. And he has to let it out somewhere. So he's let it out by killing people. It just, again, it. it it began my understanding that, like I said, nobody's just one thing. And also that people don't just wake up one day and decide to be a serial killer or wake up one day, decide to go, you know, rob a bank or go hurt somebody that it comes from a place of pain or scarcity or poverty or struggle. And that if we address that in the beginning, like we meet people's basic needs or we give people access to therapy, well, then maybe we wouldn't end up with so many serial killers or school shooters or people that are acting as crazy as they are. And that we, we can have an intervention in the beginning. And that's one of the things that I really want to focus on.
1: Yeah, I feel like uh a lot of people saying like there's the there's so many bad people out there and th- and this this person's horrible, but I feel like nobody comes out of the womb with a knife or or a gun, you know, ready to hurt somebody. You know, they come out innocent and society builds who they are. I, I feel like sociology is like real. We bring this individual, we teach them, you know, what's going on in the news and media and, and surround them in different neighborhoods or communities or people. And, and that's what cultivates that person's personality and why they do the things they do. So I strongly agree what you're talking about. But then I want to get into to TikTok, you know, like okay. how did that shit get started? Uh, you, you came home how long ago and, and now you're like, a yeah, TikTok star? Uh,
0: August of last year. So,
1: wow. So in a year you got how many followers already?
0: Like 700,000.
1: How did that start?
0: So while I was still locked up, my, my now fiance was a reporter and I met her when she did a story about my petition for clemency. So we were originally it was like reporter source. And so we would talk about, you know, they were strip searching children in visitation or they were a scabies outbreak or they were like just all the different abuses that were happening. She would do a story about it. She would like highlight it and put it on the news. And then when she left TV, we kind of remained friends. And then in the beginning of 2021, there was just this like click where it was like, hey, we're more than friends. Like there's something here. But we'd still never met in person if, if that adds to the insanity of it. Because all, everything was by phone, but whatever. So she said, hey, if we're going to have a relationship, like if we're going to do this, we have to have a common experience because people will just grow apart if they don't have a common experience. So I want to do a podcast. So I would call for the recordings. She would record them. And then we would release these podcast episodes. And she was like, Jesse, like people really like this. Like people really want to hear this. So when I got out, she said, Jesse, like, you need to do something with this. You need to do a podcast. And I had always said that when I got out, like, cause I knew like, if, you, if you're you inside, like, you know, you're kind of like wearing an armor, like, you know, you're in a different state than you are when you're free or at home with your family. And so I knew that I was going to have to deal with that or like take that off one day. So I said, I'm going to go to the top of the mountain. And originally I said I was going to eat Chinese food and I was going to like scream or I was going to like whatever I needed to do to like get back to real life. Like There was a, there was a, I think it was a Mayan ritual that like supposedly warriors who came back from battle would have to be bathed in water three times and each time they would like burn the steam off. There was just something about letting go. So when I went to do that, I was like, I'm going for that hike today. I'm going to the top of the mountain. Like I just need to, I need to start over. She said, well, look, you need to do a video. Like you need to share that with the world because people need to understand. So I did, I went to the top of a mountain and did a video and I was like, all right, whatever. Like, I'll just have this. This will be a memory for me. And within like one or two days, it had like 10,000 views. And I was like, honey, is that like normal? Is that like good? And then it had like a hundred thousand views. I was like, Oh, like maybe this is. And so I just started kind of documenting my life because I realized Like nobody knows. Nobody knows what happens in prison. And people don't know what happens when you get out of prison. And I was incredibly fortunate. Like I had a place to live. I had people offer me jobs. I had people bring me like bags full of clothes. I had it easy. And I was still struggling like emotionally and mentally. When I think about the people that that have actual like scarcity or come out with $25 and a bus ticket and they're like, well, good luck. So I wanted to document what the process of getting out was, and then people started engaging and asking questions and wanted to hear stories, and, and that allowed me to just kind of like tell my story and talk about the experience and talk about what I'm doing now. And it's opened all these amazing opportunities to to be on TV, to start a nonprofit, to go speak different places, and it's been cool because it's allowed me to take what for most people was like the worst part of their life or the biggest thing that you know nobody wants to talk about or the biggest stigma, and it's allowed me to create a platform where I talk about like, hey. We could do this better. Like we can do things differently, and we can have more success stories. Like I'm a success story because I had people who loved me and supported me while I was inside, and who loved me and gave me opportunities when I got out. Like if we had that for everybody, we'd have a lot more success stories. So quit blaming people for failing when they're laying on the ground with twenty five dollars in a bus ticket. And let's give them a hand up. Like let's give them an opportunity. Let's give them therapy. Let's give them jobs. Let's let's give them the chance to become the best people they can be.
2: Because you're on TikTok, your audience is super young. What are some of the, the questions that you get from them, the comments, if you could share some of that?
0: Sure. I mean, you get any kind of question you can think of. They're all the questions about like, uh, you know, how do you find private time in prison? Or like, do people get raped all the time? Or do you ever see somebody get stabbed? I mean, the things that I don't like to talk about, like I don't mm-hmm. I don't like to talk about the things that may be entertaining, but they kind of like cheapen it. They make the whole experience about something that's just like movie worthy, but it's not real. But the ones that are really meaningful to me, I've had like three classes. I have people who have family members who are locked up, who are just going through it and losing their minds. and They want some sense of hope. And they say they get that because they see that somebody can succeed. I have victims of crimes who say, hey, the person who hurt me has never taken accountability. Like it helps me to hear somebody take accountability. And it also allows me to ask like, what would you need to heal? Like rather than just focusing on punishing this person, what would allow you to heal and move forward as like a whole person or feel safe or feel comfortable? Like, what would that be? And then it's a lot of times people in law enforcement or COs who are like, hey, like I'm realizing like maybe I shouldn't be doing the job the way that I am. Like, if I'm just beating this person down, who's already beaten down, like what can I do instead? So we get to have these amazing exchanges and I think one of the most meaningful things is you talk about young people. I went to this documentary premiere and this kid, he kept looking at me the whole night. So at the end of the night, he like comes up to me all nervous and he says, man, I just, I want to say something like, I just think like your story is amazing. And like, you've changed the way I look at jails and prisons. And like, this is what I want to do with my life now. And he almost had like tears in his eyes. And they, it hit me. Like that was when I really understood because a lot of times I feel uncomfortable. I feel like, man, I'm just on, like on camera talking about stuff. Like this doesn't mean anything. Like I need to go get a real job. I need to, I mean, I have a real job. This isn't just what I do, but But it was just, it was a moment when I realized, like, this is actually connecting with people. Like, this is actually making a difference. And this kid is going to go forward with a different perspective. And that's why any chance I had to go speak at a law school or speak at a university and try to reach people when they're at that kind of formative stage, and these are the people who are going to be writing laws and setting culture and determining how we look at things, if I can have an influence, like, ultimately, we can actually do some good.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you gotten any negative backlash, right? Because now you're ambassador, you're trying to bring everything that you experienced to a spotlight, put in a platform. Do you get any hate mail? Oh, all any the time. Neg- I get threats. I get, you know,
0: you should have gotten more time. You should still be in. Cause you know, I got a pardon 19, 19 years into a 32 year sentence. People like you never should have gotten out. That's not fair. Or you should, you know, somebody should have
1: killed you. How was that petitioning process? Like what did you do to get out early?
0: So in Virginia, you it used to be all by, you had to do it all by hand. But I basically, um, I wrote up a petition for clemency, which is... You have to talk about like where you came from, what you did, like what your situation was. You have to accept responsibility. You have to talk about what you've done while you were in prison, what you want to do going forward. So I had to like include all my convictions, all my documentation, all you know, all that history. And then I said, okay, these are the things I've done while I was in prison. You know, I became a mentor, I taught this, I taught that, I got this job, I got a college degree, I've got a journeyman's electrical license. Like I put all the qualifications and I said, moving forward, these are the things that I want to do. And then I submitted that to the Secretary of the Commonwealth. And it's a two-year process. So that like sits on somebody's desk for however long. And then it goes to the parole board, because Virginia abolished parole in 1995. So you have parole for people from before 95, but also the parole board does clemency or, or pardon petitions. So eventually, somebody picked that up and looked at it and gave it to an investigator. The investigator ran down the information basically to make sure everything was true and then put it on the governor's desk. And the governor said, OK. And I got really lucky, because the governor who pardoned me pardoned more people than all other Virginia governors combined. Like he just sat down and said, Hey, we have all these people in prison and it doesn't make sense. Like when we started that, uh, the mental health treatment program or the the peer support program, there were seven of us started that program and three of us got a pardon and one of us made parole. So like that was a testament to the fact that, Hey, we did the right thing and they recognized it and they gave us a second chance. But the crazy thing is, like, I had an hour and a half's notice. This wasn't like, okay, Mr. Cross, and we're going to commute your sentence to whatever. They called me in the office at two o'clock on a Monday. And by 3.30, I was seeing my mom for the first time in an hour and a half. And five minutes later, I was meeting Courtney out in the parking lot for the first time ever. Like, it was just like a light switch. I went from being a dude in prison doing burpees and, like, worried about what we were going to get on the tray that night to walking out into the world. It was bizarre.
2: How was that feeling?
0: Uh, I was numb. (laughs) I was in shock.
2: Were you able to see the other inmates before you left?
0: So they, they called me in the office and then they said, look, go uh like go get your stuff together because you got to fill out paperwork. So I went back and there was one this one kid who didn't have anything. He had no family, he had no support. So I called him over. I was like, look, dude, I don't know if I can believe this because I think they might have made a mistake or they might change it back. But I said, look, pack all my stuff up. It's all yours. Like anything I have, it's yours. If I come back, I need it. But otherwise, I want to make sure you got some shoes. I want to make sure you got some food because I know you don't have anything. So I left, I filled out the paperwork and I came back. And by the time I came back, like everybody had heard what was happening. So I'm getting like handshakes and hugs. And it was funny cause this one dude, he and I were always at odds. Like we, we came close to fighting so many times and he just walked up. He was like, man, I just want to shake your hand. And I was like, why do you want to shake my hand now? Like all this time and all this stress we've been through, like why couldn't we just been cool from the beginning? But it was cause what I saw is I expected people to be jealous. You always hear about people like stealing somebody's date or like trying to mess up the parole. Instead, what I saw was people were like, man, we think this is good. We want to see somebody succeed. And that was the best in people. And I I just thought that was amazing. So I didn't get to see everybody because we were still on COVID lockdown. So I didn't get to go to any of the other dorms and they had transferred me to a dorm from the prison I was at for 13 years. So I was already missing like most of my good friends, but I got to see some of the core people. And then I got out and immediately started like sending emails and like telling people to contact me so I could let everybody know. But uh, yeah, it was, it was an overwhelming experience.
1: Did it bring some type of hope for the other inmates to seek that path? I think so. Have you helped some of those individuals wanting to seek clemency?
0: One of the things that I always tried to get guys to do because like when we started that mental health program, that peer support program, so many people talk trash about it. Like, Oh, y'all, y'all are just doing their work because it was started because they knew that mental health didn't have the staff to be there for everybody. So we were kind of like the intermediaries. We were the peer support specialist who could then be like, Hey, this guy really needs to see you or, Hey, we can kind of like talk this person down or we can get this people like we could serve to help them. And some people saw us as like supporting the system. But in my mind, we're not like supporting the system. We're trying to help people who are in need who aren't getting any help now. We got so much trash talk for it that now that I'm out, some of those people that saw that the three of us who got pardons and the one guy who got parole were like, man, maybe I can do something more with my time. Like maybe, maybe I can, you know, do something other than hate on other people trying to do something. So as far as guys getting out, I've written one parole letter and I've spoken up for another person. We have a new governor now, and I I think the likelihood of people getting a pardon under this governor is is very slim, so I haven't really focused on that, but I went and advocated in front of the General Assembly for the second look bill, for the right to vote bill, because Virginia is one of two states now where if you get a felony, you can never vote again unless the governor personally restores your rights, and we just tried to get it on the ballot. We didn't even try to say you should be able to vote or not. We just tried to allow voters to do it. It had passed one year, and the next year, it it got killed in subcommittee by a small group of people who just want to make sure that people getting out of prison don't have the right to vote.
2: And so do you see yourself going onto any other platforms outside of TikTok? You know, you're, you're almost a TikTok legend now when it comes to being an ambassador about criminal justice reform. Uh, are there any other steps of like TV, writing a book?
0: Sure. I mean, I, I do all those social media platforms because that was like a lot of work, but it made sense. Uh, I've been on, I was on Bloomberg News. I was on Daily Blast. I've done a couple like national TV spots. I've done some things for the local news when I did like donation drives and I did um, just some kind of awareness work. I've got a TV, like a scripted TV deal that's in the works, which is not directly about this, but it's kind of like a Trojan horse to talk about it. Because when we, when we originally sat down to talk, I was like, look, I think it's great. Like we can make this into a comedy. We can talk about things, but like it has to have a purpose. I don't want to just do something that's stupid. Like I, I got other projects that I can do. I actually, I just reached out yesterday. I've got a book proposal. I would like to write a book. But yeah, I'm, I'm trying as much as possible to kind of expand the opportunity to speak on this and to bring other people into the picture because I don't want it to just be about me. I want to be able to tell other people's stories and highlight their struggles and highlight their successes so that people understand this isn't just like entertainment. This isn't just one person telling stories. This is a reality for the 2.2 million people who are in involved in this country. And if we start seeing them as people and recognizing that we can make a difference and we can take a different stance, I think that we can actually accomplish something.
2: Yeah, I agree. How do you currently feel? Do you have a lot of like PTSD or do you feel like you're in a place where you're almost turning the corner and fully recovering? Or do you think this process, especially the mental process, is going to take a lot, lot more time?
0: I, I really struggled when I got out. Like that first day when I got out, we went into Costco and I just had a panic attack. It was just too much to think about. It was too many people. It was too much space. It was just it, it was too much. I've had moments like that.'ve I mean, I've had like some like laying in a fetal position, like crying moments, just like not being able to function at all. For the most part, on a daily basis, I feel like I'm like I'm here. Like I'm present, I'm able to do things. like I said, I run a nonprofit, I do the advocacy stuff, I go speak. Uh, but there' definitely there's still moments where I'm like kind of paralyzed or like we just took a trip out to California. and I was sitting at lunch right next to the beach with my best friend and with my fiance. And I just lost it. I just started like streaming tears because I was like, I never could have imagined being here. Like I never could have imagined being free and being in this place. And so, yeah, there's still times where I, I kind of am out there, but um, doing, doing the social media stuff. I didn't realize how healing it would be because I get to talk about things. I get to talk about things when I'm angry about them, or when I'm sad about them, when I have these memories that are really emotional, I get to share that. And there's something like healing or processing about that that I didn't expect. So it ended up being really helpful for me.
1: Yeah, have you spoken to the inmates about that feeling? Cause I, I feel like when I when I came home, the world was going so fast. Yeah. I remember being in the subway in, in New York and like, I felt like I was gonna throw up, you know, because everybody was moving so fast and you you just feel like you were so left behind and forgotten in a sense. And you feel like Flintstones meaning the Jetsons. <laughs> it's, it's just a wild transition, but they, nobody teaches you. Yeah. I never heard of any inmate telling me that, you know, prepare for this feeling when you come home. But do you talk to people coming home or or speak to them about that transition? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I got to pick my probably my best friend from prison up. I picked him up in July, took him home and was like we sat down like there was he didn't sleep like I did, didn't sleep for like three days. And so we sat down and we talked about that. He was like, man, what do I need to do? Like, I'm kind of scared. Like, I'm kind of overwhelmed. So we got to talk about it. And what my nonprofit does is prison reentry services. So we just did our second reentry class with a pilot group. And so it was, it was a group full of people, one of whom had just been home for three weeks. And we're talking about, hey... Like, these are the steps it took for us. Like, these are what we do. Like, we're basically trying to walk people through the process. And eventually, our goal is to actually get inside the institutions so that we can start talking about it there and then have transitional support so they come home, they're prepared for what's happening, and then they got a landing base of people they know. Like, we're there in the prison talking to them. And also, when they get home, we're there. We're like, look, give us a call. Like, if you're freaking out, give us a call. If you need something, give us a call. We want to make sure you can make this transition. Because people say, oh, well, you know, why should they get anything? It's like, you know how much it costs to arrest somebody and try them and lock them up and put them back in prison? It'd be a whole lot cheaper to make sure that they, you know, know how to get on the subway or they have a pair of shoes or they have a pair of work boots. Like, that would be a whole lot cheaper than going through this whole system. So, why don't we do that? And the state's not willing to do it. So, we've managed to get some some private donors to support us and trying to do that now.
1: That's incredible, and and that that transition of you coming home. I feel like you're so advanced for somebody that has been locked up for a long time. Like how how did you transition from you went in in two thousand two or like oh three around there like two thousand two? How was that transition in technology? You know, oh, yeah. weren't you like because I I went in and I went in with a flip phone. I came out with a touchscreen phone, but like two thousand two was like the Nokia block phone, the snake phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't even think you had a flip phone. <laughs> no, we didn't have,
0: I, there were a couple things that helped. Um, one that I like stayed interested and stayed engaged. Like I would, whether it was on TV or magazines, I would always try to stay up on at least what the tech was. So even if I didn't know what TikTok was, I knew that there was a TikTok. I knew that it was popular. I knew that there was something there. And they, so in 2015, they introduced the JPEG tablets, which are basically just like decommissioned phones. So I got to like have, The experience of like using what is essentially a smartphone. And I think that kind of prepared me because if I didn't know about that, I would have gone crazy when I got out. And I got, I got like a $50 uh, – I don't even remember what it was. Just some $50 Walmart phone. And I was like, man, this is amazing. Like I can watch videos. And, but if I hadn't had the preparation of it, I really would have lost my mind. But there's st- – I mean I'm still shocked by things. Like I remember I was trying to call a pizza place and they wouldn't answer. And Courtney was like, why don't, why don't you just order online? I was like, you can order a pizza online? Like, oh, okay. And <laughs> my favorite one was I was uh, – we, we were uh, – I was staying in this little like tiny house, this little apartment. And I was trying to cook and I was trying to like do more stuff at home. And Courtney said, you need a, a high uh, heat cooking oil. So I go to the grocery store and I'm looking around. And I'm like, man, I and I see this little old lady. I was like, "Perfectly, like, She's going to know a high heat. This is going to be perfect. So I walk up this little like 80 year old woman hunched over her card. And I said, ma'am, like I'm, I'm trying to find a high heat cooking oil. Could you could you help me? And she goes, Sonny, why don't you just Google it? And I was like.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's wild, man. That's crazy.
2: Yeah. Like Kos was saying, you know, you, you kind of been fortunate to have the support of your family, like Absolutely. be engaged in technology and also take education courses inside. Uh, but you know, a lot of people, uh, who go through the system don't have that.
0: Yeah.
2: I, I wonder if you ever feel like if your story or you being an ambassador about this, is it telling the full story or do you ever feel Do you ever take a step back because the story you're telling is not the story that a lot of other people go through?
0: No. And I really try to highlight that because people like the, the one that irritates me the most is I'll get comments like you're proof that the prison system works. And it's like, no, I didn't become the person I am because of prison. I came because I had family and I had support and I had education. And if we gave that to everybody else, we'd have a lot more people who were successful. So I really kind of try to use my platform as using myself as an example of what's possible if people had more support and had more education and had more resources. Because I really believe that's true. I don't I don't think that everybody's going to change their life. I don't think that we're going to have a 0% recidivism rate. But I think we can fundamentally change the way prisons and reentry and, and essentially like crime prevention works just by giving people the same resources and education opportunities that i had
1: have you forgiven yourself for what happened
0: that i mean that took a long time that was i was that was one thing that i did like as soon as i went to the first prison i went to mental health and everybody's like don't go to mental health like man they're gonna they're gonna put something in your record and i was like i don't care i don't want to be the person that i am i don't want to be the person who would do the things that i did like i need all the help i can get so i was going for the whole time that i was in and i still go to therapy now and that was one of the things i struggled with like how do i how do i deal with basically hating myself. How do I deal with the times when I'm angry and I don't feel bad about things I did? Like, how do I deal with that? And that was kind of a central core of dealing with what I did. And so what, what finally happened, it was probably like 13, 14, 15 years in, I woke up one day and it really hit me. I was like, I'm not that same person anymore. Like I am fundamentally not the person that I was in 2002. And I would never do those things again. Like it's not even in my mind. It's not even my character. Like I have built the habits to allow myself to be a different person. And so I can let go of and forgive the person that I was. I can recognize I have to be accountable and I have things that I have to make up for and I'll have to make up for for the rest of my life. But I can let go of that guilt because guilt is a motivator to change. And I've done the work. I've changed. I'm not that person anymore.
1: And what do you think the hardest step of your life has been? Was it that? beginning step of going you know committing the crime getting locked up and then being in that situation of realizing you're incarcerated you're serving so much time was that like the hardest hardest step because I, I feel like when i was incarcerated prison was just like a day-to-day thing i've been in and out of the jail system since i was 13. so for me it was a revolving door and it was just like whatever it took for me to go through i call it my spiritual awakening while i was incarcerated. to to make me realize when I was in solitary confinement, what I was doing was really wrong, and I was affecting so many people. But what what was that spark? What was that that hardest step that you feel like was the hardest thing you've gone in your life? I mean, it was the same thing for me. It was because I did. I had like
0: a fairly comfortable existence. I had a job. I had a good cell where, like you know, I could get the special TV stations with an antenna out the window. But it was it was all these things in my life all coming together. You know, I lost my I lost my dad while I was inside. I I went through some experiences. And I woke up one day and I wanted to kill myself. I was like, my life has no meaning. I I can't keep doing this. Like I can't do another, however many years, like I'm just done. And that was when it, there was like a switch that flipped. There was all of a sudden space for that. And it was a realization that like, that somehow I could get through this and I had to make some serious changes in my life. And I had to actually like move in a different direction, but something flipped. And that was like, But it was that moment, it was like, I have never felt so crushed by life or so crushed by anything as I did in that moment. And somehow that was the moment that allowed the switch to flip and allowed me to really kind of grow into the person that I am today.
2: Amazing. Thank you for being on, but we wanna give you the opportunity to plug your social media platform, your nonprofit, everything you're doing.
0: Sure. Uh, I'm second underscore Chancer, like C-H-A-N-C-E-R on all the social media platforms. And uh, the nonprofit is second-chancer.org. We do prison reentry services. We're starting in Charlottesville, Virginia, but our goal is to expand across the state and eventually across the country because we want to make sure that people have a second
2: chance. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on The Hardest Step. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. And I'm your host, Koss. And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this one, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Special thanks to our producers, Monica and Moyo.